All right, I'm ready. So um, we started an Ask Anything series a few weeks ago, and uh, we, end, we really end the series next week, but today is the last official talk in the series, but next week is going to be a panel discussion where I have four leaders on stage, and we're taking all the questions that were decent questions, but we didn't have time to answer them in the series, or they didn't rise to the level of a sermon. They couldn't fill up an entire... So it'll be like little questions that you all thought of. I don't think the dinosaur question is going to make the cut, just so you know. But if you ask the dinosaur question, I guess we can chat later. But um, I don't think it made the cut, in the, even for next week. Uh, I, I think every year someone asks, like, what's the deal with dinosaurs? And we're just... It's like an annual question. I don't know how that happens, but it is. Um, but today's question is a really important question. And one of the most important questions that you all ask, and the question is this, how do we overcome sexual temptation? All right? So it's going to be a little bit of a heavier talk than usual, but that's okay. Uh, so as we talk about this question, I'm going to be considering all the ways in which you can fall into temptation as it relates to this question. So this could be, of course, dating relationships, um, someone asking you to send pics, you sending someone else pics, uh, pornography on your phone, a tablet, laptop what you watch on all your streaming devices, everything will in some way, I think, relate to uh, today's message. And I want to remind you that, um, that being tempted is not the same thing as sinning. The Bible tells us that Jesus was even tempted, but he did not fall into sin. So Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because he was tempted in all the ways that you and I are tempted, it says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to, to be tempted in that way. There is no temptation that you experience or that I experience that Jesus did not also experience. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around that as it relates to temptation as a whole, but as we discuss this, we have to wrestle with, okay, what does that mean exactly? That Jesus was tempted in every single way that you and I were tempted. Now, you might think to yourself, well, you know, Jesus never sinned, and, and I sin all the time, so how can I ever approach God with confidence? But this passage says the opposite is true. Because we only focus on one half of the equation, right? You know, Jesus never sinned, so how can I ever approach him with confidence, knowing that he was perfect? But this verse says we've got to look at the other side of the story. And it's that he was tempted as we are. And this is where we get our confidence from. So this means that we can come before him speaking honestly because he has experienced just what you and I have experienced as it relates to temptation. Now, have you ever had a friend that has maybe been through something traumatic in the same way that you have? It could be some huge traumatic thing in your, your family story or your own life. And if you have a friend 
that you know of that's experienced the same kind of thing or a similar thing, you know that person is someone that you can go to. Like, you know that person is like, when, when I talk to them, they get it. Like, they understand where I'm coming from. That's Jesus for you and me. Like, that's the way in which we can relate to him is that he was tempted in the ways that you and I are tempted. And because of that, we're able to approach him with confidence as you might a friend, knowing that person, they get it and they understand where you're coming from. So we're never going to be temptation-free in this life. So the question becomes, how do we struggle with temptation and keep from falling into sin? So we're going to answer that question today. I'm going to look at two main passages. One's going to be in Matthew, and one is going to be in Colossians. And we're first going to look at the, the depth of sexual sin, how it's not just physical acts, but we're also going to look at how we can learn to walk in holiness in areas, in areas like this in our lives. So the first passage is Jesus' most famous sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. You can turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll look at a few verses there, verse 27 to 30. It's his most famous sermon, and he covered a multitude of things, but one of the things he talks about, he first discusses anger, and then he gets into the sin of lust. And so Matthew 5, 27, where it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, if you're new to the Bible, just chill for a bit, okay? Because that's a lot that you just took in. And we're going to talk about what this means as we go. But um, he has some pretty strong words for the sin of lust. Now let's back up a little bit and, and go, to the, go to the beginning of that section where it says, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, he's referring back to the Ten Commandments. Because the people he's speaking to, they knew the law backwards and forwards, and they knew that the law forbids adultery. That was not new information for them. But Jesus now takes it a step further, and he shows how adultery... It starts in the heart. It's like the impact thing that we always say, where sin always starts in the heart. That comes from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says this. So most everyone, we know that most everyone out there in the culture, for the most part, even the non-believer, they believe that adultery is wrong. Like cheating on your spouse is wrong. If you did a man-on-the-street interview and asked that question of a believer or non-believer, I think most would agree that adultery is something you should not do if you're married to someone. So it's one sin where the church and the culture agree cheating on your wife or husband is always wrong, but almost no one, almost no one thinks that lust is wrong, and that includes Christians today. So how do we define lust, the word that's being used here? Well, I will say that, that thinking that someone is attractive is not the same thing as lust. They're different things. So um, I've told the story before, but when I first met my wife, Courtney, uh, she was working at this restaurant, and I walked in, and she, 
she took my sandwich order at this counter that I was ordering from, right? I had no idea, of course, but I first saw her, I thought, okay, she's attractive. I, I wasn't lusting in that moment. It was like I just an acknowledgement that this is an attractive person standing in front of me, all right? So that's what was taking place there. Now, it's possible to meet someone and just very quickly know this person is attractive or this person is even attractive to me in my eyes. Now, you can look at someone. It's possible to look at someone in their totality and recognize attraction, that you're even attracted to them, and that's not a sinful thing. You see, lust is when your eyes start to get specific, okay? So looking at someone with with lustful intent, as it's described here, is to look at someone with the purpose of lust. Like, that's why you're looking at them is for that purpose. You're, You're playing out sinful actions in your mind. When you lust after someone, it's like you're separating body from soul. You're just seeing them as a physical object and not seeing them in their totality, body connected to soul as a person, as a human in front of you. I'll also say that sexual desire is not the same thing as lust. I think we've discussed this a number of times, but I'll say it again. God created you with desire. That is how he designed us. That is part of his purpose. But just having sexual desire is not the same thing as lust. God creates everybody with desire, but lust is when you feed sexual desire in a sinful way, and this applies to both men and women. I know we usually associate this word with men, but it applies to both genders, of course. You know, many years ago, um, I was at a different church serving in ministry as an intern, and we were discussing this one night with some friends And this was a mixed group of people. And a lot of us in our youth, we just kind of thought, we always associate the word lust with, we always thought of, of, yeah, that's what guys struggle with, and and maybe girls not so much. And we thought that way. And this this woman who served with us, she said, listen, you guys don't understand. Like, no, we struggle. It may not be the exact same way in which the guys struggle, but here's the way that she defined this for me, and it kind of changed how I viewed it. She said, yeah, you know, for men, Lust might be desiring someone in a sinful way, but she said for women, lust is wanting to be desired. And that's how she described lust for her. Now listen, it's not always that way, okay? I'm not saying that it's always that way. But that's kind of how she said that's where a lot of women probably lean as far as how they might struggle with this kind of thing. There's a um, professor of sociology and women's studies at Wheelock College in Boston And this woman is an anti-porn scholar, and she's not a believer that I know of. Her name is Dr. Dr. Gail Dines. And she says that when young women spend time watching their heroes in our culture, you know, being sexual, like on a stage performing or even in music videos or on social media, she says it presents these girls with one of two choices, either be overtly sexual or be invisible. That in our culture, it feels like that's your two options if you're a young woman today. And she asked, what kind of choice is that for a teenage girl when wired into the DNA of an adolescent is the need to be seen? And so as a result, she says, young women feel this pressure to increasingly dress or pose or present themselves in increasingly more sexualized ways 
And she says, though they may not watch porn, they're being influenced by a porn culture. And they may not even realize it. So if you want to be the object of someone else's lust, that is a type of lust. And the, the person, you know, sending the pick request or the person who's sending the pick, both people are caught in this sin of lust together. So the focus of this talk is going to be more on what we put in front of our eyes than, um, and what we allow to play out in our minds. But I will say, um, if you're in a dating relationship right now, I'm not going to talk a lot about the dating relationship today, but if you're in a relationship right now with someone and you're doing anything, like anything on the spectrum that's sexual, then I'm going to call you to repent and say, you need to turn and repent from that and, and give that over to God. If anything is happening, listen, they don't belong to you and you don't belong to them, at least not yet. Not until there's a marriage covenant. So if that's where you are, you need to repent and turn that part of your life, surrender that part of your life to Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot more time today talking more about what goes in front of our eyes and what we allow to play out on our minds as it relates to Matthew chapter 5. It's really amazing how we justify sin in our lives and especially in our relationships. Because here Jesus, in Matthew 5, Jesus is simply talking about just looking at someone with lustful intent. Just looking. That's all we're talking about in Matthew 5. So why wouldn't it apply if we're doing something sexual with someone? Why wouldn't it apply to that as well if he's just talking about simply looking with your eyes in Matthew 5? So what's being described here by Jesus is just everyday social interactions in which people are still fully clothed, but you might fall into lust. That's what he's talking about. What we have today is an entire pornographic culture that's much more intentional and willful, and so-called Christians are falling for the lie that, you know, it's just, it's just entertainment, it's just art. It's just a, it's a good movie. It's a good show. I know it has that stuff in it, but, I mean, it's, it's got a really good plot. It's got an actor or actress I really, really like. And so we fall for the lie that the culture is selling to us. So what does repentance look like in these areas? Well, okay, what is he saying in verses 29 to 30? Like the, like the in-your-face stuff. They just think, like, how can he say that to gouge out your eye? This is not meant to be taken literally, because if it was, all of us would not have any arms or legs or eyes. We'd be one big nub, all of us, right? And that's not what he's talking about. But what he's saying is Jesus would often use this thing called hyperbole, which is like an exaggerated overstatement to make a point. And he, he's saying this, you've got to take drastic action to deal with sin, and that's what repentance looks like, is at times getting really drastic to cut out the sin source in your life, whatever that might be. So what might it look like for someone who's struggling with porn? Well, you know, whenever I counsel with students in the past, or even more recently, whenever they confess these kinds of things, either to myself or even to our leaders, 
we will often ask questions like, okay, well, you've confessed it, but like now, like, what's your plan? And they might say, well, you know, I, I confessed it. Isn't that enough? Like, I, I just thought that I could just verbalize what I've been doing and that would like take care of it. And I'm just going to pray that God gives me the strength to fight the temptation. I would say, no, 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 that's not how this works. Because there are times that you need to cut out the source of temptation. And as he says, cut off the arm or cut off, gouge out the eye. And so what if you, for even a season of time, what if you cut out the source of temptation, even for a season? That might be your phone. That might be your streaming services. That might be your computer, tablet. And usually I'll hear excuses like, you know, I, I can't do that. I mean, I really need my phone. I mean, I need my Apple TV. I need my Netflix. I need my HBO. And I would say, well, you mean kind of like you need your eye? And kind of like you need your hand? Because Jesus says, gouge out the eye and cut off your hand, and we can't even cut off the account? We can't even get rid of the device that's not attached to our body, but Jesus says, cut off the hand, gouge out the eye, go to extreme measures to cut the sin source out of your life. He's saying, do whatever it takes. That might be at least filtering software and whatever device you're struggling with, at least that. So notice something else Jesus says in this passage. He says that this person should do this for themselves. He's not saying, mom, dad, you go do it for the, 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 the teenager or for, 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 the, for the son or the daughter. He's saying, you become the kind of person that does this for yourself. Now, of course, I will tell any parent, it's really important for a parent to kind of be the go-between for a season of time as you guys get your devices and you kind of get to an age where you're going to be leaving the house. I think it's really important for a parent to say, you know what, we're going to start off like this, and you're not going to like it. It may be not the phone you want or the device that you want fully, it might have some filtering software on it. We may ask you to be out in the living room with your laptop at all times or don't have your phone back in your room ever. We may ask you to do some of those rules as a parent because they don't want you to grow up and, and be, have an addiction that they knew nothing about at a young age. Because we know research shows that the earlier these things start, the harder they are to break as you go through life. Because it's like your, your brain gets rewired the earlier these things begin. And the harder they are to break from, break free from as you age. And so it's really important for a parent to step in and have, be a part of that conversation and be a part of that process as you grow up. But yeah, once you're 18 and you're an adult, it's up to you now. It's on you. And this verse, Jesus says, become the kind of person who does this for themselves. That's the kind of students we want to raise in here. And the kind of person that we want our families to be raising is someone who sees this as a big enough deal that they will do this for themselves. So when you look at the closing words of this passage, we're reminded that the stakes are really high. Because Jesus says that eternity is at stake. 
Now, this does not mean that you are, if you are currently struggling or have struggled in the past, that you're going to be separated from God for eternity. Everyone struggles with temptation and everyone struggles with sin. But struggling is different than walking. Struggling implies that there's a struggle, that there's a fight, there's a conflict, and you're trying to get help, you're trying to seek help. But walking in it is more willful, intentional, I don't really care, everybody's doing this, what's the big deal, I'm just going to, you know, do this until I get married. Like, that's walking in it, that's living in it. And if that's someone's posture towards this sin, or really any other kind of sin, that might show that they don't truly know Christ and haven't really come into relationship with him. So Jesus says, eternity is at stake here. This is a big deal. Now, whenever I counsel people in areas of sexual temptation, I say this. You've got to learn how to fight this battle on two fronts. There's the external war and there's the internal war. And we've talked some about the, about the external, and we'll talk more about that here in a minute. But we'll look, we'll look also at the internal war as well. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, where Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this, this idea of, of putting something to death is not some abstract, high and lofty spiritual exercise. But it is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, because if you have, you have died with Christ, you can now get rid of sinful practices. So, so Paul is saying, I think, a very similar thing here in Colossians 3. So putting to death may be similar to what Jesus says, the, the very physical act of cutting out the sin source, whatever that sin source is in your life, and getting rid of sinful practices. Do whatever it takes. The word for sexual immorality here is pornea, where we get the word pornography, and refers to anything that's sexual outside of marriage. And notice the link that he makes, calling all of these sins idolatry. You see, we have to remember that at the heart of sin, there is this worship issue. There's disordered worship. We are worshiping the creation and not the creator. And notice how all these, these sins are listed together because sin rarely ever happens just in isolation. We rarely struggle with just, yeah, this is this one sin that I'm struggling with. Usually they come as like a cluster, right? They come as a constellation. And the reason for this is because idolatry is always at the root. And all these outward sins, they're just the fruit. And I did not mean for that to rhyme. But idolatry is at the heart of it. But then it flows out into all the fruit, the external sins that we talk about that are listed here. So how do we fight this external war? Well, the first step, I think, for you is going to be confess the struggle. And this, I think, should be with someone who 
can help you take next steps. Not just a friend who's just going to listen and hear and that's it. That might be important. But maybe you go to someone who's a little bit older, wiser, maybe a mentor, maybe one of your parents, maybe one of the leaders here, and you confess to struggle with someone who can help you take next steps. There's a guy named Jonathan Daugherty who actually grew up here in Temple and went to Temple Bible Church when he was young. His family came here to church. And uh, he's got an organization called Be Broken Ministries in San Antonio. And they help people all over the world break free of temptation in these areas. And his own story is a part of that. Like he is someone who lived as the, 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 the good youth group kid all the way through high school. He came here to TBC in high school. And then he had this secret life, though, that he wasn't telling anybody about. Never confessed it to anybody. And he, he sort of went on this, I can't explain all the details, but just in these horrible places in his life sexually for a number of years before he fully repented. And he was married. His wife stayed with him. And they are a testament to God's grace and redemption today. And he's helping people get through these kinds of temptations with his organization. He says this in one of his books. Confession unlocks the truth about the real you, allowing for the possibility of something new, of real transformation to occur. So there is confession to God. You can't ever just say, oh, I confess it to God. God knows about it. God already knew about it. But you need to confess to him, agree with him that it's sin, but then also confess to someone that can actually help you take next step. Take a next step. So confession means that we take responsibility for our sexual sin before God, but we also get to rest in his forgiveness and his grace. You know, some people see confession as the only step in accountability. It's an important step, but it doesn't change anything if you don't take the next steps. The next step would be this. Seek to understand triggers. I got this from uh, Jonathan Darty's book. He says, he says, pay attention to when you struggle the most. So for many in areas of addiction, this applies to lots of addictions, not just this one, but there are six different kinds of triggers, he says. There is, there is hungry, and there's angry, and if you combine those, that's hangry, as you know. There is hungry, there's angry, there's lonely, tired, bored, and stressed. So when are you experiencing these kinds of things? Very often... We, we look for an escape, and sometimes that escape is, I've got to go to the phone, I've got to go to the computer, I've got to go to the TV. And, and so when you experience those triggers, you've got to make a decision, okay, I'm going to go somewhere different. I'm not going to go to the thing I normally go to when I'm experiencing these kinds of, these kinds of triggers. If you struggle on your phone late at night when no one's around, then what are you going to do differently? Sometimes it's places or it's people, being around certain groups of people. If this group of people or that place cause you to struggle, then what are you going to do differently? At times we like run to these things, becoming addicted early in life, and it's, for some of us it can be a way of, of trying to mask the pain and trauma. I think of when Mrs. Ron Slaven shared a few weeks ago talking about depression and just her own personal story in that regard. But in your youth, sometimes you look for an escape from pain and trauma that you may have experienced in your life. And at times, it might be this. 
that that's where you find solace, that that's where you find the escape. And I, I would say to you that, that that might, you might need to go see and, and talk with someone about that. I'm, I'm referring to like a professional counselor. The stigma should be lifted by now that we, we all probably could benefit from that. But if you have some issues like that in your past, that might be why you're going to these things, that you might benefit from something like that. And then thirdly, cut out the sources of sin in your life. We've already talked about this in Matthew 5 and Colossians 3. I won't keep unpacking that for you today. But you've seen that in those two passages. Now listen, you cannot just fight the external war and then ignore the internal war. There's an internal war to be had as well. And so how do we fight the internal war? Well, the first is this. You commune with God. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that because Caleb did a great job talking about that last week. And we talk about that all the time. But it means like this, developing this relationship with God through prayer, the spiritual disciplines, worship, reading the word. And that's what that looks like. And then secondly, commune with others. We also discuss community here a lot. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that either. But then thirdly, from Colossians 3, we see that you've got to see sin as idolatry. You can't just see these sins, external sins, as just an action. Or, yeah, I did that thing and it was wrong. But you've got to learn to see it as idolatry that's happening inside your heart. That's what's, where sin flows from. When you look at all the sins listed in Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 10, the root of sin is always idolatry. And so when you think of something like stealing listed in Colossians 3, so why do people steal? Well, they think security is found in, in, in money or possessions. And, but we're reminded that Jesus offers you that security in a relationship with him. Why do people lie? Well, we want approval. But Jesus gives you that kind of approval that you might be seeking. Why do people get angry? Well, for many, it's about somebody disrespecting them. But Jesus was disrespected at the cross. So you and I don't have to act out sinfully in an angry way. And why do people sin sexually? Well, they think that God isn't good. Maybe God's holding out on them. That, was, that goes back to the first sin in the garden where Adam and Eve thought, you know, God isn't very good. Maybe God's keeping something from us. And this is, I think, why many of us uh, fall into sin sexually. But remember, all of our outward sins that we talk about, they are always tied to worship and how we view God. Do you see him as good? Do you see him as one who's holding out on you, keeping good things from you? If you do, you're going to struggle with all kinds of sins, but especially the sin of sexual, or the falling, in, falling prey to sexual temptation. So these are the things that we need to bring into the moment of temptation. These ideas that, that, of course, we need to see sin as idolatry. And then lastly is put on the new self. And listen, that could be like a whole other sermon of what that means. But if putting off the old self is the external war, then putting on the new self is you fighting the internal war. And again, you can't just fight one or the other, external and no internal, or internal and no external. They've got to be fought together. And Paul says that the new self 
is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, this means that you recognize your new identity in Christ and you align your behavior with that. And I wish I could spend more time talking about um, what this concept means of putting on the new self. But this does not mean that you don't struggle with temptation and even sin sometimes, but you struggle from a posture of repentance when you struggle from a place of, being, of putting on the new self. Now, the question that many of you guys are probably wondering is, okay, what if I've already failed a lot in these areas of my life? Am I too far gone? Am I beyond hope? Well, it's really important for you to understand the, the difference between guilt and shame as we talk about it. Because biblical guilt, like true biblical guilt, can be a good thing and can be the thing that leads you to repentance. Shame, though, can be very destructive. I love this next quote. It says, guilt says, I have made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt says, I have sinned. And it might be a good recognition, a biblical recognition of truth that I have fallen short And we all should have, in some sense, an acknowledgement of guilt before God. But shame goes a bit further and thinks that I'm beyond repair. I'm beyond redemption. I'm beyond transformation. And that is a lie that Satan wants you to believe. That's a lie that your own flesh wants you to believe. So if true guilt isn't dealt with in a biblical way, which is to recognize Christ's redemption for you at the cross— then it's going to turn into shame, and it's going to infect your heart in a real negative way. So shame says you're worthless, but God says you're worth dying for. So as we've talked about temptation, you might think that there's no positive purpose that temptation could possibly serve in my life. I love these words by uh, St. Augustine. He says this, During this earthly pilgrimage, Our life cannot be free from temptation, for none of us comes to know ourselves except through the experience of temptation. Nor can we be crowned until we have come through victorious, nor be victorious until we have been in battle, nor fight our battles unless we have an enemy and temptations to overcome. So listen, experiencing temptation isn't all bad because we come to know ourselves in a new light And most importantly, we come to see God and his grace in a new light. So we're going to go to our breakouts here. Um, For our leaders, I've got discussion questions there.